Coming up on One Decision. Ports, uh, infrastructure, industrial zones. There are military aspects to this. It has implications for whether the United States remains a superpower or does not. And they're trying to persuade us that this isn't a threat to our security. God, what rubbish. How certain are you that Huawei 5G is going to, if it's not already, be used for spying? 100%. Welcome back to One Decision. I'm Michelle Kosinski. So you may be aware of China's growing presence in all kinds of corners of industry all over the world. They seem to be everywhere in Africa, South America. But now that investment is also rapidly building in the Middle East and in some very sensitive sectors like 5G internet, of course, artificial intelligence, defense deals. So is this decision by China to go there and by countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE to accept disturbing for Western democracies and the United States? Should it be? We're diving deep into this with a man named Charles Dunn, who knows this area inside and out. But first, let's check in with someone pretty vocal on the risks of such deals, Britain's former head of MI6, Sir Richard Dearlove. Hi, Michelle. First of all, Richard, what does China really want with the Middle East? In Africa, they also found governments in need of cash, but much different dynamic here. Oh, it's a totally different dynamic. But I mean, it, it, it wants influence, it wants purchase. I think it wants privileged access to energy supplies, which it's already done, of course, with Iran. I mean, that, the Iranian door was wide open. So, I mean, I think this actually is a, it, it's a pretty crucial and important issue. And I mean, I've dealt extensively with the governing families in the Middle East, whether it was Saudi Arabia, UAE, but they love to remind you that, you know, they can do they can do things differently. They can talk to different people, and 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 they just they 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 love to sort of jab you in the ribs, and can be pretty pretty damned unpleasant in the way that they do it. For example, you know the Brits have always been weapons suppliers to the UAE, and we've had a privileged relationship with them. But then they go off and buy French stuff, and and you know, basically thumb their nose at you and say, well. We decided to buy French because we just wanted to make you think that, you know, we're not always going to lean on you as a supplier. So, I mean, they, they, they're up to this all the time. So what do they get out of a relationship with China? Yeah, it's another friend, it's another ally, it's another source of investment. But, you know, it's complicated <laughs> by the fact that, you know, China at the moment has a pretty privileged relationship with Iran with a massive trade deal. Yeah. So, you know, the Chinese are playing all of their options. Now, during the Obama administration, when I covered the White House, I feel like every day somebody in that administration would say, we have no problem with a rising China. But they said it so often that you just felt like, wow, they have a huge problem with a rising China. They don't know what to do about it. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, Obama didn't really work this out, did he? And he, I mean, He tried with the TPP. That was his baby. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, he got he got part part way there, but I mean, I do think that you know Obama's foreign policy team was weak. Mm. And they, they 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 just didn't didn't hack it, didn't get it right. But then Trump's foreign policy team was like on crack. <laughs> they were on crack, but you know the irony is that you know Trump 
did actually end up doing some good things. Yeah, yeah. Maybe by accident. Yeah, but he started a freaking trade war with China. But do you think that needed to happen? Did that shake China up a little bit? Yeah, I think it needed. We needed to shake up the relationship with China. We certainly don't want a trade war with them. And in fact, you know, maybe... Trump overdid it. So people like to talk about the risks of China getting into places. Um, and the Middle East is a particularly prickly one for so many reasons. Do you see risks in China's gaining influence there? Yeah, I think, you know, because it's really been um, a bailiwick where, you know, Western influence has dominated. And, you know, once the Chinese get their foot in the door, you know, they're very good at, you know, exploiting that wedge and widening the door and buying friends and influence and using their money, you know, to build friendships. Definitely. I mean, they want world domination, right? Isn't that their stated goal? Well, I guess they want to be the dominant superpower. And of course, it's they get on like a house on fire with regimes that are autocratic that don't turn around and criticize them for their human rights records. You know, yeah. the Chinese are super sensitive about being criticized on human rights. So, right. yeah. So, when you look into your crystal, your spy crystal ball 25 years down the road, do you see all of these autocratic regimes just teaming up? and being vastly more powerful and influential and militarily strong than the Western democracies. Yeah, I, I think that they will become more awkward partners, and I think they'll care less what we think about their style of government and their tendency you know, to lock up people who disagree with the way they want to run the country. Yeah, I mean, it's none of this is a good sign for human rights and societies becoming nicer and more open to their citizens. None, none no. of this sounds great. No, none of it sounds great. And, you know, the Chinese very successfully have shown that you can use technology to increase the power of central government in controlling the population. I mean, you know, we have used technology in the West, really, to empower the individual. So, you know, power is diffused away from governments and all sorts of little groups, you know, can organize, express themselves, make problems. You know, we're, we're, we're massively empowered by technology. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, someone was telling me the other day, <laughs> uh, you know, he, 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 he was in, I think, Shanghai, and he had crossed the street illegally I nodded the traffic lights and this had been picked up on cameras and his image had been projected onto a big screen somewhere on the street, you know, to show people around that this particular individual <laughs> was not obeying the rules. And I, I mean, I'm sure you're wow. aware that Chinese are building a system where every member of the population has a file and a point score. Yes. And you get bonus points for doing good things like giving blood or, you know, volunteering yeah. to sweep the staircase if you live in a communal block. And you get minus points if you're socially misbehaving or doing things which are disapproved of by the local, you know, party organization. I mean, it yeah. really is big brother stuff. So right.
And for a spy master to feel that way about it, it has to be concerning. Okay, Richard, we're going to talk a lot more about 5G and the risks there. I know you have a lot to say about that. So everyone, stick around. But let's bring in Charles Dunn, a veteran of the State Department, Pentagon, and National Security Council, currently with the Middle East Institute. He's also worked for the human rights group Freedom House and has written extensively on Chinese investment. In fact, he's just done a piece on global competition in the Red Sea. Welcome, Charles. Great to have you and your vast knowledge on here. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Um, When I was in the Foreign Service on the policy planning staff uh, at the State Department, um, there wasn't too much concern about what was going on with China in the region. That time is long in the past. So... Um, This is becoming an increasingly important issue, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, because of the nature of the global competition between the United States and China, and particularly because of the Biden administration's intention to pay more attention to the Indo-Pacific region and less to the security and diplomacy of of the Middle East, which creates a much bigger potential opening for Beijing, I think. Since he left the State Department in 2009, China has made moves all over the place. An enormous one being, of course, its Belt and Road Initiative to build all sorts of infrastructure and links spanning Africa, Asia, Europe, and the Middle East. More than 125 countries involved in one way or another. Trillions of dollars of investment and partnerships with a completion date of 2049. Again, the long game that so few others are playing, definitely not the United States. When did it start becoming concerning to you that you thought, wait a second, this could actually pose some problems? Well, I started first thinking and writing a little bit about this issue um, a couple of years ago. Um, It was the height of the Trump administration and relations between the two countries were deteriorating. In the meantime, the interest of the Gulf countries in the Middle East uh, to build closer economic, uh, technological, and political ties uh, with China seemed to be rising. That seemed to me a strategic issue of pretty major importance. So what are the biggest issues for you in terms of, of what the Chinese are investing in and the willingness of Saudi uh, of Middle Eastern countries to have this? ports, uh, infrastructure, industrial zones. There are military aspects uh, to this. Um, The Chinese have invested a considerable amount of money uh, in the Gwadior port in Pakistan, which potentially has military implications. The same is being done in Dukham, which is in Oman. There could eventually be military uh, elements to that. And of course, the Chinese have a pretty significant military base. They're first in the region uh, in Djibouti, where they exist within a couple of miles of the United States base, which has made for some uh, tension uh, there. Um, And that could conceivably be expanded as Chinese uh, interests uh, expand in the region. Do the Chinese have political interests in the Middle East, or are they pretty much willing to do business with anyone who will have them? This is one of the interesting things. They do seem to want to do business with anybody 
who would like to do business with them, which is pretty much all of the countries uh, in the region. Um, so obviously, for example, Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, are locked in a struggle for strategic influence in the region. So China has to be very careful if it has interest in Saudi Arabia, which it does, uh, not to seem to take Iran's side in political issues or overinvest in a way that uh, advantages Iran uh, at Saudi Arabia's expense. Um, China has taken over management of Israel's port of Haifa, where the U.S. Sixth Fleet also frequently docks. Again, another uh, example of uh, tension potentially between uh, China and the United States militarily uh, in the region. Um, but expanding relations uh, politically, economically, militarily uh, with Israel uh, is obviously a source of concern uh, to a number of uh, countries uh, in the Middle East. But the situation is 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 very delicate for the for and the Chinese. Would you say that it's a conscious decision to choose for these investments China over another country like the United States? Or in many cases, is China the only one mm. making these kinds of grand gestures of cooperation? China has decided to adopt an overall policy um, of stressing uh, dignity, uh, mutual respect, and non-interference, which is the, the phrase. And this is extremely appealing to a lot of the countries in the Middle East who don't like, for example, U.S. involvement in their countries coming with human rights strings mm -hmm. attached uh, or other political considerations. Also, some of the governments in the region with which they do the most business, uh, the UAE, for example, and Saudi Arabia, for another, um, are autocratic. Uh, they are comfortable doing business with other autocratic powers. They are not overly concerned with transparency in the business arrangements that we may, they, they make. They certainly have the means to do big projects on their own. What are they getting out of an investment relationship with China? Well, first of all, they're getting um, a very solid market for their products, which consists mainly of uh, petroleum. Uh, China depends on the Middle East for around half of its petroleum imports. And in some cases, the Chinese have made arrangements with countries such as Iran or Saudi Arabia to guarantee these exports into the foreseeable future. Um, for their part, the Middle Eastern countries, and particularly in the Gulf, have received access to important Chinese technology that in some cases faces restrictions uh, if they were to try to import it from the United States or the European Union. I'm thinking here of, for example, armed drones, uh, which China is eagerly uh, signing deals, several uh, Gulf countries uh, to supply. Um, the other thing the Middle Eastern countries get is a huge amount of foreign direct investment from the Chinese. And in 2016, China became the leading provider of uh, foreign direct investment uh, to the Middle East. And as for strings attached, the crushing debt we've seen happen in countries of Africa, South America and beyond, Zambia just defaulted on its massive Chinese loans. Sri Lanka needed a bailout after borrowing to build a port. 
A Chinese firm then ended up buying the controlling stake in it. Middle Eastern countries aren't worried about that, though, or about all the foreign workers brought in, or their living and working conditions, or a potential military aspect. While they're doing business with China, the Saudis, for example, are still dependent on the U.S. security Mm -hmm. umbrella. So they know who's going to back them up uh, in the event of some kind of dispute. So what, if any, threat is this to the U.S.? Well, I think, first of all, the United States, we know the United States is worried about the proximity of uh, Chinese naval facilities, uh, for example, for conducting intelligence uh, operations against the United States. This is true in Djibouti, but it's also true in Israel, where uh, the Trump administration was really concerned about the implications of Chinese port management in Haifa and intelligence collection against the Sixth Fleet. But those are minor concerns compared to the future of, say, Gulf security and the key shipping routes that go through the Red Sea. Um, There's no indication at the moment uh, that China wants to assume a more major role, but they may be poised to do so. If the U.S. actually does begin to draw down military assets in a significant way from the Middle East, um, there may be more pressure on Beijing to increase its own protection of the sea lanes, which would obviously have implications for increasing Chinese diplomatic uh, uh, presence, uh, activities, and certainly influence uh, with some of these capitals. Why has the U.S.? not been a better competitor to China in not just the Middle East, but also Africa and South America? The U.S. isn't terribly good at grand strategy. We've done it uh, once in a while, the Marshall Plan being a primary example. But in general, the U.S. isn't all that good at long-term strategic thinking, in part because governments change uh, fairly frequently and uh, sometimes policies change. Uh, as a result of that. Uh, So what one administration considers a threat or something that's highly important, another administration doesn't. So those are, that's the major thing. Second of all, the level of investment uh, to quote unquote counter China in the Middle East, not to mention elsewhere, is extremely daunting. You know, in a country, the U.S., it's already, you know, running a major uh, budget deficit. There's one other thing that I'd like to mention, which is I don't believe there's unanimity among uh, the U.S. foreign policy establishment on whether such things as the Belt and Road Initiative or the Chinese presence at the port in Djibouti necessarily is a strategic threat. There also may be openings for the United States to encourage U.S. business uh, to essentially piggyback on the investments that the Chinese are already making, use their infrastructure um, to advantage U.S. Well, businesses. What about Chinese invest, well, Middle Eastern investment in Chinese technology like 5G, um, Huawei, yes. AI, drones? That seems to be of concern. That is a major concern. And in fact, China has 5G development agreements with every country uh, in the Persian Gulf, uh, at least in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, The UAE and Saudi Arabia in particular are investing heavily in this. 
But there are implications for the surveillance state and for the human rights community. These countries' investment in Chinese AI uh, and drones um, are and should be very concerning. Are they not concerned about how that could affect their relationship with the U.S.? They are concerned about the U.S. reaction to a certain extent, particularly if they feel they might get caught up in Washington sanctions against Chinese companies with which they're doing business. Um, But they are engaged in the constant process of gauging Washington's rhetoric about human rights, about security issues, about cooperation with China and the implications of that to see if Washington is very serious. And I don't think they've made up their mind right now. The Biden administration has talked a lot, for example, about cracking down on on international corruption, um, cracking down on human rights abusers. In practice, they've done very little of that so far in the administration. Um, I think some of the Middle East countries are breathing a little bit easier. To what extent would you say that this arrangement with so much Chinese investment there has affected the U.S.'s relationship with these Middle Eastern countries? So far, I don't think it has affected its relationship um, to any significant degree. Um, The Gulf states continue to depend very heavily on U.S. arms sales, although China is becoming a major arms dealer to the region. And they have extremely deep key elements of the U.S. government. Administrations come and go, but the Pentagon and the CIA are forever. So why do you think, for for our listeners, why should people care about this? Because it has implications for whether the United States remains a superpower or does not. The Middle East continues to be critically important to the world economy, even if the United States is a net exporter of oil and doesn't depend on Middle East oil anymore. The world economy does. So who holds major influence in that region um, has a lot of implications for who the major superpower in the world is. Now, maybe Americans don't care if the United States remains a major superpower. That's fine, too. But if you are looking to advance democracy, if you're looking to advance human rights, if you're looking to advance U.S. economic interests and advantages to American consumers, it is an important issue. There have been some high-level meetings between the U.S. and UAE on this very subject. Plus, the UAE will have a temporary seat next year on the U.N. Security Council, where China and Russia tend to team up and veto things the West wants. Will countries like this now feel more pull from China on those important decisions? And Saudi Arabia has tied its own long-term strategic vision to partnerships with China. It's all becoming too close in some cases, Charles Dunn would say, to overlapping sensitive U.S. interests. So what do you think people ought to know about these kinds of deals that China is going after? Well, I think people should try to understand the pervasiveness and the scope of what China is accomplishing. Let's just take, for example, um, the Belt and Road Initiative uh, projects, like $2 trillion in the next five to seven years. And the AI business uh, in the Middle East um, 
is currently valued at hundreds of billions of dollars, and that's uh, expected to take off exponentially. You know, Americans should understand that China right now sees itself as having a major competitive advantage in the region, and it is trying to exploit that advantage, while Washington is not making the same level of investments and incentives uh, for its own businesses uh, to compete with China. And there are huge markets that they might eventually be missing out on. What worries you most? What worries me the most is the human rights factor, how the Chinese government is using AI to monitor citizens through facial recognition, for example. Um, I think a number of autocrats in the Gulf region would be very happy to adapt that same technology, which probably the United States wouldn't be willing to sell them to develop a totalitarian system of monitoring uh, their citizens and locking in autocracy for uh, the very long term, especially when we have seen uh, these same countries such as Saudi Arabia and the UAE backing military regimes to uh, destroy democratic transitions like we just saw in Sudan um, and providing quiet behind-the-scenes assistance to the coup in Tunisia as well. And that does worry me uh, for the for the political future. Is it going to weaken the partnerships between these countries and the U.S.? There's an element of uncertainty. I think we've sent, I wouldn't even describe it as mixed signals. We've sent the wrong signals uh, to Saudi Arabia and other authoritarians in the region definitely pick up on those signals and apply it to their own behavior. Um, and I don't think, for example, Riyadh is overly concerned that um, its uh, cooperation on you know, security AI, uh, even if it is used to abuse human rights, is going to draw a very strong reaction from Washington. But as for a security threat to the West, Charles feels the biggest risk is in Chinese expansion of ports, airport systems, and other infrastructure that could be an easy front for intelligence gathering. The United States could be more assertive uh, in making sure that uh, these countries understand U.S. security concerns about Chinese intelligence operations and uh, the dangers of uh, increasing Chinese military involvement uh, in the region. Um, and so far, this not, has not really been done about whether some of these projects can be militarized by the Chinese government if necessary in the future. A smaller but nevertheless significant security concern is the dangers of the United States and China operating their naval forces in close proximity to one another. There are dangers of miscalculation uh, and tension. We saw that in Djibouti a few years ago when the U.S. accused China uh, operating out of their base in Djibouti of using lasers to flash at uh, U.S. aircraft. That's just one small example of what, what could go wrong and potentially lead to something bigger. As China gains influence, does U.S. leverage necessarily decrease? It does, but it's a very slow rate of decrease mm -hmm. at this point. Uh, the U.S. military and diplomatic relations with many of these countries are very deep, uh, very longstanding, much more so than these countries' relationship with uh, China. If the United States 
decides to execute what Barack Obama called a pivot to Asia, that is going to create something of a political vacuum that somebody is going to have to fill. And that has direct implications for the political and economic stability, not only of that region, but for, in some senses, the world economy. That's the thing that I would be most worried about as we watch how uh, U.S.-Chinese competition take shape in the Middle East uh, over the next five years or so. It also seems like in the world today, all of the autocrats have found ways to get together and make each other stronger and make a bigger case for not democracy in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is definitely true. Uh, there's a process known in literature as authoritarian learning, in which authoritarian governments exchange best practices, protect each other in international fora, try to shape world norms in ways that benefit uh, themselves. That has definitely been going on, and the Middle East countries have learned and cooperated with China on many of these things. The Chinese, as you know, have been trying and trying to use uh, COVID and internal U.S. politics to show that democracy uh, no longer works. Um, And I think one of the major challenges for the Biden administration is to make good on its strategy to improve democracy's brand worldwide, to push back against authoritarianism. That has implications for the political future of the Middle East and whether people are going to continue to live in oppression, which uh, 83% of the region does, according to Freedom House, where I used to work, or whether there can be significant reform leading to democratization. So for those out there who see all of these moves China is making, and they think, my Mm -hmm. God, China is taking over the world and the U.S. is missing out, Is there some truth to that? In the 1980s, people thought the same about Japan, and that was a source of huge controversy in the United States when Japanese firms were buying up major real estate all over the country and so Mm on. Um, Then they entered a long-term economic stagnation. And there's certainly some concern that China may be headed in that direction as well. Um, given its real estate uh, woes. But when China doesn't call a country out like Saudi Arabia for human rights issues and provides an alternative to the U.S., does that have the risk of down the road changing the U.S.'s stance on those things as regards some of these countries? I think we saw that certainly in the Trump administration. Absolutely. When the president refused to halt arms sales to Saudi Arabia after the Khashoggi murder, um, specifically saying that, well, if we don't sell arms, Russia and and China will. Um, So, yes, uh, I think there's a very real risk for any administration that realpolitik will take over when you have a meaningful economic decision, including a major arms sale. Uh, to some of these countries. Selling our allies, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, armed drones from China. How much does that bother you? Well, it bothers me a lot in as much as we've seen what armed drones can do 
in places like Yemen and so on. And um, it's a major humanitarian uh, and human rights threat. Um, uh, they can be used for internal repression just as easily as they can be used uh, for foreign adventurism. And this is something that you have to think about if you worry whether the United States security umbrella and footprint in the region is going to get a bit, a little bit lighter. And some of these countries decide they have to do more in their own and defense. And what kind of influence does the U.S. have anymore in preventing those kinds of things from happening? I think the U.S. has more influence than it thinks it does. If it chooses to make these cooperation issues a much bigger element of the bilateral relationship, that can scare away some of these countries from getting in too deep with China. I think the Biden administration could make an ally of Congress on some of these issues. We're doing more on human rights and do more, doing more on arms sales uh, to the region. And I don't think that's been leveraged at all. And that could be very influential, I believe, in Gulf capitals. I don't think they believe that the Chinese government can provide them some of the same things that the U.S. has been more than willing to do for, for quite some time. Uh, and this does include essentially a defense umbrella, um, political assistance against uh, their enemy in Iran, uh, and other things that I don't think Beijing has any interest Charles, in doing. Charles, it's been such a pleasure picking your brain on these matters. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Let's bring in our favorite spy master, Sir Richard Dearlove again, who naturally has some real worries about Chinese spying through its deal making. Ain't that right, Richard? I mean, it's pretty scary. I mean, it, 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 it's extraordinarily so. What is the biggest risk to a country like the U.S. in this? Well, that it loses, it loses its ability to project influence. And okay, I I know a lot of people will, you know, be sort of anti-American in their concept of American influence and how it's been exercised. But I think now, you know, you and I do understand that, you know, the there's a lot about you know American principles and liberal democracy, which is important for the future of humanity, yeah. for the future of government. Um, and you know, we're, we're, there's a risk that in chunks of the world, particularly if you get a, a prolonged bout of American isolationism. That the you know these liberal Western principles get displaced and devalued, and you know an awful lot of people out there are going to have pretty miserable lives because they're going to be subject to very repressive, controlling regimes where they have no say, where they can't get rid of their rulers, where yeah, question governmental decisions. And I know you have a lot to say about China's five G technology through Huawei, which the U.S. has banned. Well, I mean, you know, Huawei. Yeah, I want a model. You know, you what you do is you you heavily subsidize its manufacturing. The state does, so they produce very effective, very cheap technology. They put their competitors out of business by undercutting them, and slowly, you know, this spider creeps across the international telecommunication system. Uh, and lo and behold, you know, a lot of people's vital communications are suddenly 
in Chinese hands. And they're trying to persuade us that this isn't a threat to our security. God, what rubbish. I mean, you know, if you read um, any, you know, Chinese military document, it talks about the fusion of civil and military power. Um, someone recently did an analysis, 22 of the top officials um, in Huawei have been um, trained in military universities in China. I mean, it, 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 it's crazy. And then, uh, you know, even even the UK, God, I'm so ashamed of what they did. Yeah. Well, but they, okay, so they were fine with it for a while. But then was it you who was instrumental in talking them out of it? Well, I certainly one of the key people. Look, when I was the head of, 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 of SIS, BT, British Te Telecom, you know, the main, mm -hmm. what had been the general post office, you know, that was privatized as, as British Telecom, signed the first big deal with Huawei. And they didn't even ask government ministers about it. And some of us in the intelligence community said to BT, you must be off your heads. What are you doing? <laughs> and we, we just got ignored and suppressed, as it were, because, you know, you're, you're bit players. You, this is a big commercial deal. So I was extremely personally. Um, and uh, people were furious with me. And in the meantime, Huawei had created an advisory board called, you know, the Club of 49 or whatever, and signed up you know, the top 50 British business people in the UK for whom they were paying ridiculous advisory fees so that they would have this sort of political lobby. They should all be ashamed of themselves. I They've know. all disappeared into the woodwork now and won't talk about it. But, I mean, it, it was disgusting what happened here. Yeah. I mean, the fact is they've lost the uh, 5G contract but, yeah. I mean, part of the problem now is, you know, finding companies, alternative companies that have, you know, the technology, mm. you know, which Huawei was able to offer. So as a former spymaster, how certain are you that Huawei 5G is going to, if it's not already, be used for spying? 100%. Oh, I what mean, makes what you I so certain? Is I love it. Point, at some point, put it like this, if the Chinese state says to Huawei, jump, it jumps. If the need arises, which it would inevitably in the future, then you have an insecure communication system. Yeah. It's as simple as that. And it's it's almost like a like a villain, like a like a James Bond villain. Like they know how to get in there, and you have no idea what they're going to do next. I had you know a lobby of you know intelligence and security people, you know, shouting at me, saying, "Oh, we've looked at this; it's all quite safe. It's complete rubbish." And and you know, as AI becomes more capable. Oh, God. I mean, you know, the, 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 we're going to be wide open. Yeah. And how much does, when, when China is now making those very deals for 5G with every country in the Middle East, uh, for AI, for drones, and you name it, how much does that muddy up the exposure that U.S. companies have when they're doing business with the same people? Well, I think they've got to be very careful, you know, when there are overlaps. And I mean, it's like, you know, selling 
F-35 aircraft to the UAE. And then, you know, the UAE employing Chinese technicians in their air force because they're servicing other planes. They can nip around to the next hangar and and have a good look at bits of the F-35, which they may have not seen before. I mean, that's a rather banal example, but you you, you can see what I mean. Mm -hmm. Believe you me, if you want to collect information on, you know, other people's, let's say, technology or weapon systems, it's very much easier to do it in a third country than it is in the primary country. And don't ask me too many questions about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you notice the awkward (laughs) silence after that statement. (laughs) You see these deals being made, for example, AI and 5G throughout the Middle East. That doesn't bode well for personal freedom there, does it? No, I think if you spend time in Saudi Arabia, you, you just understand how authoritarian, instinctively authoritarian and, 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 and controlling these regimes are when they feel threatened, when they disagree with criticism, um, you know, in the most banal and extraordinary ways. And right. you're much more likely, you know, to nip around the corner and get one of your people to speak to the Chinese ambassador or the Chinese local you know, security people say, can you help us solve this technical problem? Particularly if it's about, you know, control. Have you got some kit that we can buy? Exactly. Um, because you know that the Americans can say, well, hang on a moment. Yeah, no, we're not doing we're, that. We're not, we're not selling you this stuff or we're not going to sell you this weapon system because you, you may use it internally to suppress your population. I mean, you know, this is, comes up all the time in the UK. Yeah. Maybe... You know, the Saudis will feel a hell of a lot more comfortable dealing with people who are never going to criticise their human rights records. Don't talk about COVID. They're, they're much more worried about, you know, the virus of democracy. Um, you know, they can, they can control COVID. What they can't control so easily is, you know, the democratic spirit if it gets injected into young people in China. So you still think that democracy is the best way that humans govern themselves, Richard? Uh, I think I agree with the up. <laughs> I, mean, I can't remember what Churchill said about democracy, but there's a great quotation about being being the least effective but only system, you know. Of, yeah. You know, it, it is, you know, it's a hell of a problem to make it work. Let's let's all be. Fair about that. <laughs> I mean, look at the, look at look at the pain and the, in Washington. Oh. You know. It's so much wasted time. Uh, yeah, and look at the, you know, the pain in all of our countries, but um, it's better than any other system. I'm glad you think so. Thank you, good sir. And thank you for joining us today on One Decision. Follow us anywhere you find your podcast and on social media, where we'd love to hear your ideas as well. I'm Michelle Kosinski here at One Decision. One Decision.